I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, this is the Red Fox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 to 1. Coming up on today's episode, politics has got big lots of big philosophical debates what are the ethics of needing a piece of paper to go to the pub we ask some philosophers including ac grayling what should we be thinking about all of this big stuff but first we kick off with our columnist panel a brand new columnist panel for thursdays we're calling it night at the marriott i think it's india night and james marriott So we're talking, uh, this, well, we, when we were talking in our sort of long email chat about what to discuss uh, today, both of you sort of alighted on, I don't know what it is, it's sort of, well, partly there's this story around about uh, a ruling that calling a colleague immature is not an insult because older workers can can behave in a childish manner too. But also the, the different ways that different age groups have coped with the last few months and how we're getting on with our friends and that sort of thing. Uh India, do you want to kick us off on this? Where do you think we are in the, the battle of the ages? I think it's a difficult time because I think it's, um, you know, you can't really swerve the fact that older people generally, by and large, have had an easier time of it by virtue, for example, of having larger houses, often with gardens. Um, and young people are, uh, you know, definitely getting the thin end of the wedge. Um, in every respect, including, it would appear, possibly uh, delayed vaccinations. So it's tough. It's tough. I feel very sorry for the young, like young James. <laughs> <laughs> now then, young James, how are you finding uh, lockdown and the prospect that, you know, India and perhaps even I might be able to go to the pub and uh, with gay abandon and you might be stuck outside waiting to get your papers? Well, I think I'm an I'm a bit of an anomaly, and it doesn't bother me too much. I'm I'm in a I'm in a kind of nice flat with two flatmates who I like a lot. I think we're all a little bit antisocial, so we're kind of perfectly happy to all retreat to our bedrooms. And then when we need a bit of sort of socialising, we can all go and sit in the front room with each other and you know chat a small bit, and then also not talk. And the pub, I was never I don't know the pub was never a huge feature of my life. I was a little quite boring life. So the whole thing is sort of I know I should be incredibly upset, but I'm sort of I'm sort of not. But that's just because I, li- I live a kind of boring life. I think, <laughs> James, this, I'm taking this as a personal fun. That one of my best days last summer was when I you you and I spent an evening in the pub. Well, I like I liked that evening. It depends who you go with. Doesn't oh, that it? is true. Um, if I can go true. with Matt Chorley, then I love the pub. <laughs> 
Now, India, we were also talking about friends and uh, the pressure that the last 12 months have put on people Mm. and their friendships. And what's been your experience of friendships in the last year? My experience of friendships has been great, except that recently I've noticed, I mean, I think everybody's been going, you know, slowly mad, slowly deranged in one way or another. And it's kind of reaching its peak, possibly because the possibility of freedom is on the horizon. Um, And I have noticed that lots and lots and lots of people are having really quite bad arguments with really quite quite close friends um, and, you know, often sort of quite terminal um, arguments. And I think it's because in the course of normal life, if somebody says something irritating or slights you in some way or whatever, you've got enough going on in your life to, 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 go, to get past it. You know, it doesn't sort of properly barely register. Um, whereas now everybody is so much on their own and everybody has got so much time to brood in. Um, I think people are becoming quite fractious, quite sour, actually. That's really interesting. That You're right that there's sort of, if someone is a bit annoying, nothing mm. ha- else happens for a week. So that's all you exactly. think about is that one person exactly. being annoying. Yeah, oh. and then it sort of grows arms and legs and becomes, you know, becomes a sort of huge looming thing. And also all of the sort of the social cues of whether it's in the pub. Clearly, James has a terrible yeah. time in the pub with me but with other people. <laughs> but you sort of, you know, someone's a bit annoying, but the conversation goes on and, you, you know, but and you realise yeah, actually that was made in jest. Else, exactly. But it's really all those social cues on, on Zoom or FaceTime or whatever it is or text. It just removes a lot of that human stuff, yeah, uh, which yeah. stops people taking things the wrong way. Yes, exactly. Situations are sort of harder to read. And we read too much into them, text being a case in point. Quite a lot of these falling, fallings out have occurred over text. What about you, James? How is, how is your WhatsApps? I've kind of had the opposite experience. I think one of the nice things about, especially this most recent lockdown, has been my old kind of WhatsApp group with all my friends from university that was like slowly dying, the sort of depressing death, the further we all got away from university, <laughs> the busier we all got, the more we all moved to different cities. Suddenly, because we're all bored, we're forced to actually talk to each other. And it's been lovely. It's been so nostalgic. I've been talking to my old university friends. There's been a bit of back and forth because the main thing that happened to this WhatsApp group was someone would get really angry about something. They'd sort of send seven texts, seven very long texts into the WhatsApp group about the thing they were angry about. Everyone would ignore them. And then the next week, someone else would be angry and do the same thing and they'd get ignored. But now we chat. There's a little bit of back and forth. There are jokes. There are memes. It's a little kind of social revolution, actually. I, I'm finding it so touching and heartwarming. I mean, maybe everyone else just thinks I'm talking too much into it. But um, it's been lovely. <laughs> For me. Everyone else is thinking, God, I hate James. It is actually just me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, what, James, why do you, do you think that will continue? Or will you go back to your busy life of ignoring my messages about going to the pub? I think as soon as this is over, I'm just going to ignore you, Matt. Right. Uh, this is what I've been hoping. No, um, <laughs> I think... I'm optimistic that we sort of all reconnected a bit and, you know, it's been nice to remember that kind of university friendship, but I don't know. The whole thing has just reminded you of how much real life kind of sweeps away the things you'd like to maintain, like those kind of friendships around the edges with people from university. And I, I don't know, I have this sort of sad feeling that maybe when we all have our busy lives back together, we can all go to the pub with Matt Chorley and, you know, I'll be sitting alone with my WhatsApp group waiting for someone to talk to me and actually that'll all be over by that point. And what about, is there anything... Do you think this might have made us slightly focus on who we actually want to be friends with? And if yes, definitely, we have slightly definitely. edited out the people and the things that we used to do or the places we used to go. And there were the, we, we all have the list in our minds of the people we really miss and can't wait to see. There's like yeah. a whole load of other people. We wouldn't that mind that much if we didn't it's, bother. Exactly, exactly. No, it's. I think it's made everybody 
the last year has made everyone sort of edit down mentally, at least their friendships. You know, you're exactly right. There are lots and lots of people who I'm champing at the bit to see. And then there's quite a sizable chunk of people that, you know, if I see them sort of in the street, I'll wave cheerfully, but I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be much more, I'm going to be much more pernickety. Um, and also, actually, I think it, I mean, this, it, you know, I don't want to jinx anything by talking about the possibility of socializing in a room, but, um, but I think that thing that lots of people do of saying yes to everything and going to everything because, you know, you might as well, that has really, really lost its appeal. I want to see the people I want to see, they're very specific people, and I'm not really interested in sort of huge gatherings that may or may not be fun that you think you might as well go along to. That's kind of completely out for me. But we all need to get we all need to get a sort of new vocabulary of saying no to things because when they yeah. when someone says, yeah, "Do you want to come to this?" <laughs> Suddenly, having to invent whole new ways of saying politely, "No, I don't want to do that." No, I really be... <laughs> don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I want to talk. You want to talk about London. Um, because, uh, James, you're very pro-London, and India, you've got a bit of a downer on London. Well, I haven't got a downer. I love London. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic city, and I've spent, I spent the larger part of my life, spent 45 years in it. You know, I consider myself a Londoner, but I moved away from it, um, gosh, nearly six years ago now, and the further you are from London, the more you become irritated by... <laughs> London's self-obsession it's not you know I don't, I don't have anything against London but I'm very pro everywhere else and I think that everywhere else kind of gets lost in the kind of in Londoners fixation with London I mean, obviously it's a cent- it's a center of cultural excellence and all sorts of things and and that's quite right and there are millions of things to celebrate about London not least Londoners themselves but I think that the rest of the country gets dismissed as being sort of provincial or a bit behind or a bit slow or sort of not quite getting it. I think actually that really applies um, also in terms of politics. It's very easy when you're in London to dismiss everybody who disagrees with you as being, you know, a bit bigoted or a bit dim or a bit kind of behind. Um, and that's what irritates me, not not London itself, which is magnificent, obviously. <laughs> But you've, you've fallen in love with London again, James. Yeah, well, reading India's excellent column at the weekend made me think that actually I am I am actually I have become a smug Londoner. Because <laughs> I grew up in um, in Newcastle, so London always to, to me as a teenager seemed like the centre of the world. Uh, and now I've moved to London, I still think of London as the centre of the world. But it's kind of more obnoxious, I think, for a Londoner to think that than it is for a teenager to think mm. that. Mm. Um, my, my other big realisation about living in cities has been actually I had to go on holiday into the English countryside last summer when we couldn't travel abroad and I realised that I need to live in cities for organisational and logistic reasons and so I'm not a very organised person so I've realised that unless I actually live above a Tesco I can never accurately shop for all the things I need. (laughs) Because if it's an hour walk to Tesco, then I'm just doomed because as soon as you get something, your entire evening is spent walking to and from Tesco, whereas I live above a Tesco, um, which you can only do in a city, and that makes my life much easier. (laughs) And this is my new realisation about why I need to live in a city. It's just... I can't survive. I can't survive otherwise, I think. I'd probably die. I think this is a youth-related thing. <laughs> I think it could well be. It could well be. Yeah, there will come a point where you don't want to live above Tesco. I think that's... I, can't, I, can't, I refuse to believe that. <laughs> the thing, I tell you what, because when we were talking about this, one thing that struck me was the... Because I'm always sort of slightly annoyed as being a sort of professional Somerset boy. And now and mm. I, I live in Hampshire now, so rather than central London. But always sort of slightly annoyed when, like, national news and national newspapers were obsessed with 
either the refurbishment of London Bridge train station, which is just outside mm. where we are now, mm. or the Garden Bridge, as if this is yeah. some issue of national uh, interest. Yes, exactly, exactly. That's a perfect example. And in the last couple of weeks, I was struck by the the, the parallels of the what the policing of the Sarah Everard uh, vigil mm. in London, mm. uh, and then the what the protest that happened last weekend in Bristol. Mm. And I feel like we had far more days of pencil-sucking think pieces about what happening Clapham meant uh, than in Bristol. Um, and yeah. you know, and and we, if if that had happened, if Bristol had happened in London, we would still be talking about it now, and we'd have had colour pieces and think pieces yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it, it, yeah, it's just it, it just annoys me. I'm not, I don't know yeah, what that... <laughs> it's just annoying. I mean, I think with Sarah Everard, you know, the the, the, the the geography obviously was important because these were the streets that that she lived in and walked through, and you know, oh, it's, it's still so awful to even think about it. Um, uh, but yes, you're absolutely right. The, the, but the in a way, London the fact that, that the streets that journalists walk through seem yeah, to, in some way, so. and and people on Twitter walk through, seem to yeah. seems to elevate it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It would have it would have uh, become uh, regional news much more quickly if it had not been London. Because I think the Bristol thing is really. We might return to Bristol. I think the Bristol thing is really interesting. Of all the places, why is it Bristol that it happened this year? Why is Bristol the place that they tore down the statue? The history of Bristol mm-hmm. and the and the the protests. And although Marvin Rees says uh, the mayor of Bristol says that um, most of the protesters came from outside, there is just something interesting about Bristol's history of protests and that. Sort of thing, which we'd probably, if it had been Brixton, we'd have been talking about the Again, history and all yeah, of that. Yeah, we'd have, absolutely. We'd yeah. have focused on that. Right, finally, I just want to talk to you about social media. Uh, in fact, a little bit of that, because, you know, everyone has got a story you know, needs to share their truth on social media. <laughs> you think it would be better if we were off social media altogether, India. Discuss. Well, I don't think off altogether, because I think it has its uses. I think it's still a really good news source when a story is breaking. Um, so, you know, the storming of the Capitol in Washington, for example, would be a really good case in point, or a general election, or even PMQs were one not glued to your own marvellous programme. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, so that's, all, that's all, it's really useful for that. And then there are little sort of sub-Twitters that are lovely that talk about, I don't know, recipes or gardening or books or, you know, that exchange information in a friendly way. But generally, I joined it, I can't remember... 2009 I think maybe 2007 and it was really fun it was kind of it was jokes basically it was kids in the back of the bus um it was mostly people who like me work from home and don't have a kind of physical water cooler and it was jolly and good-hearted and well-intentioned and it was it was it was a nice time and then you'd get your bits of news or your your bits of information and it was great now I think it's become largely performative um in quite a problematic way uh it's also become, I think, sort of ungenuine in that everybody is frightened of saying what they really feel in case, you know, they're, they're hauled up for it or lose their job for it 10 years later, like the poor editor of Teen Vogue who lasted two minutes because of something objectionable she had uh, tweeted when she was very young. Um, so, I th- yeah, I think it's become difficult. And I think for journalists it's difficult too because... While it's really, I mean, I think if you are going to be on social media, you should absolutely follow people whose opinions you disagree with. Um, I think then it becomes quite valuable and useful. But if you're endlessly in your little group of people who all agree with each other and are all outraged, constantly, permanently red in the face about the same thing, you know, <laughs> you just think maybe it's not a brilliant use of your time. Oh, it's just it's just the use of time thing. I mean, I yeah. uh, I waste far too much time on it. It's a constant source of friction in our house. 
Uh, and if if you just put it down and do literally anything else, cook, literally anything. read a yeah. book, look yeah. at the Stare wall. Stare out the window. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What about you, James? Yeah, I mean, I, I love India's point that it used to be funny and now now everyone's incredibly serious. I think someone once said trying to be serious on Twitter, you're just kind of it's missing the point. It's like turning up to a pajama party in a suit, I think someone said. And it's just a misuse of the it's just a misuse of the medium. It works if people are telling jokes. But if yeah. you're trying to make serious points in the space of 280 characters, nothing will ever, as we have seen in the kind of rolling horror of the last sort of, you know, 10 years or whatever on Twitter, nothing will ever go well. No one's ever going to understand what you really mean. Everyone's always going to take things in bad faith. Um, I go through periodic um, moments of trying to get off Twitter. I'll manage to block it on my phone. It'll be quite good for a while. Um, but I'm, I'm a total hypocrite because I realise whenever I... Whenever I do a tweet that does quite well, I'm like, oh, well, actually, Twitter's not such a bad thing. These people have yeah. quite good taste. A few hundred people have liked my tweet. And then if I get ignored, then I'm like, oh, well, I always hated Twitter. Um, got no time for it at all. Then it'll delete it off my phone. And I'll sort of get sucked back into it like this. And I acknowledge I'm a, I'm a complete hypocrite. Uh, I, I'm quite down at the moment because I think only about seven people liked my last tweet. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm walking off in a huff at the moment. But See, I, I will it's be not back. good. It's, it's, a, it's a bad thing. You know, it's like, it's like a dog being given treats until it becomes completely <laughs> obese. You know, there's something wrong with the whole, um, with the whole situation. That was Indian Night and James Merritt there. Of course, you can read them both in the Times and the Sunday Times. You just need to keep yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, the only way is ethics. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, we're going to talk ethics. 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 Yes, so sometimes politics is all about the small stuff. Who's up and who's down? A bit of money here, a little bit of a mistake there. But sometimes it's about the big stuff. And the last 12 months have forced us all to confront the really big 
questions, questions that have taxed philosophers and political theorists down the ages. What is right and wrong? What are my individual rights versus those of another person or the whole community? Am I free to do as I please or do I or the state have a collective responsibility to others? Should those who have lived their lives be sacrificed to allow the young to live theirs unimpeded? And now, splashed across the front of the papers today, does an Englishman have a right to go to the pub unimpeded, even if he could uh, harm his fellow drinkers? Other nationalities and genders are available when going to the pub, I should uh, hasten to add. Now, this was Boris Johnson speaking yesterday about the prospect of vaccination passports. I do think that the basic concept of uh, vaccine certification uh, should not be totally alien to us because, after all, uh, when you're entrusted with care of a, a patient and uh, you say you're, you're, you're a surgeon, you're expected to have a vaccination against uh, hepatitis B. Uh, the, the principle is, is there. Uh, this is a particularly uh, contagious disease. It can be very uh, nasty in, indeed. Uh, we've seen what happened in, uh, in care homes. It, it doesn't seem to me to be irresponsible at all. Far from it. It's wholly responsible for um, care home companies to, to think of, of, of requiring vaccination. You mentioned surgeons and, and the care sector. That's very different to uh, the ordinary citizen going to the home. So is, do, do you recognise that fiction for COVID vaccine certification? I think that that's the, the kind of thing that, um, you know, it may be up to individual publicans. Uh, I find myself in this uh, long national conversation uh, thinking very, very deeply about it. And I think the public have been thinking very deeply about it. And we're going to think very deeply about it now. Uh, let's kick off by speaking to the philosopher A.C. Grayley, who joins me. Good morning. Morning, Hugh. So uh, I don't know whether to start with the really big questions or the really small ones. Where do you think we are uh, sort of philosophically right now? What sort of... Are we all libertarians now? Are we Talk us through the different schools of philosophy and how they apply to the current situation we're living in. Good heavens, uh, how much time <laughs> do we have to do this? <laughs> I mean, I think it, it, so far as this particular issue is concerned, there are those libertarians who think no constraints whatever are ever justified, even in times of emergency. Now, on the whole, when it comes to our civil liberties, our freedom of movement, our freedom of expression, our autonomy, uh, I'm uh, sympathetic to that aspect, at least, of, of libertarianism. But I do think there are circumstances, grave circumstances, wartime, for example, or a global pandemic, where providing that the restrictions are severely time limited, they're imposed just for a few months, they're appealable, you can appeal against your allocation to whichever group. Uh, there are no Stanley Johnson loopholes, so some people can go to the pub no matter what, uh, while other people can't because they haven't been vaccinated yet. Just providing it's fair, time-limited and appealable, it seems to me rational in order to try to get to grips with this awful pandemic that we do do something along these lines. But, I mean, fundamentally, the principle is that anything that constrains our civil liberties is uh, bad. And the only thing that could justify it temporarily would be something even worse. And in my view, the pandemic is worse. 
And I suppose the uh, quite a lot hangs on your concept of temporary as well. The, it, you know, when we went into that lockdown exactly a year ago, when it was first announced, it was going to be reviewed after three weeks. And we've been under some form of uh, limitation on our civil liberties ever since. And there's a, you know, there's a big debate going on uh, in the Commons this afternoon about extending the powers to... October. And it, it, I suppose uh, even though supposedly all, all the restrictions will be lifted in June, even though at the beginning of the year we were only going into lockdown to vaccinate the most vulnerable. And I suppose that's where th- there is a fear that what we've we've sacrificed in the last year is is handing over more easily the, 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 the power of the government to take away some of those civil liberties. Well, yes, uh, but, uh, you know, there's nothing particularly complicated about the concept of something's being temporary or of a provision having a sunset clause attached to it. In fact, we're, we're very used to this. Emergency powers that were taken in connection with Northern Ireland, for example, had sunset clauses attached to them, and they had to be renewed on, on purpose, consciously. There had to be a debate about it in Parliament in order to renew them. It may very well be that the, the measures that were taken uh, last year uh, were too temporary. So we ended lockdown too early, uh, hoping to get the economy uh, open again, going again. Um, but temporary means temporary. It means that there is a, a limit to it. So if it's three months or six months or, or even, you know, at the outset, a year. Back in the Second World War, identity cards were introduced. They were abolished afterwards in the early 50s, quite rightly. But um, the idea there was perfectly well understood that this was something necessitated by the emergency of the time. I think we're in an emergency situation now. And, and that's, that's why you would have though. And on, the, on that question of, uh, let's talk about the, this idea of needing some sort of passport, show us your papers to go to the pub. What are the sort of, because it's the, oh, I don't want to do, you know, people might just think, oh, I don't want to do that. I shouldn't have to do that. Well, I'll go to a different pub or whatever. What are the the, the sort of the ethical questions that, that, you know, Boris Johnson is clearly grappling with them. It feels like our political institutions, our political parties don't really know how to deal with a with an ethical question. You know, the Labour Party seem, line seems to be, well, there's strong arguments on both sides. Um, what are the questions uh, there in terms of uh, the, the rights and wrongs of a, of a passport to go to the pub? Well, it's a fundamental civil liberty that we should be able to move around our own country and indeed uh, travel from it. Um, autonomously, you know, we make that decision. It's, it's our uh, right to do it. So autonomy, privacy, freedom of movement, these are very, very important indeed among the most fundamental of our rights. Therefore, it would take some very extreme uh, em- emergency to override them. And the only justification one could give would be both the extremity of the emergency and if this were strictly time limited. That, I think, has to be the justification. But we sort of, we do accept other limits, don't we? For instance, we, I don't have the freedom to drive home from the pub after I've uh, had several pints. Uh, I don't have the freedom to, when I, you know, when I was 16, I didn't have the freedom to go into the pub and, and drink. There were lots of things already that we we do accept, you know, in, as Boris Johnson was talking about, if I, if I was a surgeon, I would have to have the hepatitis... Uh, B vaccine. So there are there already. It's not. It's not as if the, up until twelve months ago we were living in a total state of freedom and, and do as I please. No, there, but there you eloquently make the case for a, a temporary certification in the COVID crisis, uh, indeed. Because uh, what what you're saying there is, if there are powerful justifications for doing something, for example, protecting people 
um, from those who are drunk and protecting themselves, driving a motor car, there is a good rational justification for it. One has to be very careful about these. You can't have blanket provisions. They've got to be case by case. They have to be well understood. There have to be good arguments in support of them. But if you can give those good arguments, I think on the whole, people are sensible and they can see why it might be necessary to do this. And in this particular case, uh, I, I do think that the weight uh, of consideration lies in favor of doing what it takes to try to protect people, protect lives and get this pandemic over as soon as possible. Just finally, I just wonder what, what you think about the sort of the state of these, the, the way this debate is happening in politics right now. Do you think it would be better if our political leaders of all parties were more willing to grapple with these big ideas? Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, no, no question about that. I mean, you know, our public discourse is uh, polluted by sloganization, tabloid attitudes, um, political point scoring. Uh, you, you know, we have a we have a very hard time getting sensible, rational policies discussed, implemented, um, managed in ways that the general public can understand. It, it's a great pity. But uh, here we are, you know, we're in a babel of, of um, pro and con. And there's no question but that um, people, and I think probably they're going to be in a, in a minority because um, most people have a basic kind of common sense to them. People who are strongly in favor of a libertarian uh, treatment of this are gonna get as much airtime as the people who say, look, there are good reasons. Again, time limited, appealable, et cetera, et cetera. And they're gonna get the same amount of airtime and therefore the the result of the debate is not going to be as clean cut as it should be. Yeah, you think that because you have these, yeah, the, 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 the tendency towards opposing views means that it gives the impression that this country split 50-50 and actually, if you look at opinion polls, one of the overriding things seems to have been the public has been massively in favour of, of more restrictions to, just to deal with uh, coronavirus. AC Grading, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Times Radio to talk through uh, where we are in this uh, great philosophical debate. We've had quite a lot of messages in already. Uh, keep those coming in at 8722. Start your message with the word Times. What do you think about this? And uh, not, you know, in terms of sort of political point scoring, that sort of thing. But where does the freedom lie? Where does, does the freedom to the pub extend to the freedom to give someone else coronavirus when you get there? Is it a price worth paying? That's the question that, uh, that we're grappling with uh, right now. Uh, up next, we're going to speak to a bioethicist and an expert in specifically the ethics of vaccinations. Keep your messages coming in. 8722, start your message with the word Times. We'll find out what you think after this. On digital radio, on the web and via the Times Radio app. Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Ethics. Ethics. Yeah, it's quite enough of that. So we're talking ethics, the big philosophical questions of the day, in part triggered by Boris Johnson floating the possibility of a, of a, of a passport to go to the pub where you'd have to prove uh, that you've either been vaccinated or, as number 10 later clarified, that you've uh, had a negative test. But it just felt a bit like we don't have these big uh, debates, uh, probably enough in uh, politics about, you know, personal freedom and responsibility and liberty and all that. Bob in Surrey says, it all depends whether you think uh, it's to protect every, to protect you from everyone else or to demonstrate that you take responsibility to protect everyone else. Rights come at the expense of responsibilities. Rosie says, uh, pub, no pub, jab, no jab, public... Uh, and will do what's best to suit their air. public will do what's best to suit their area. Village pub, most of the va villages may be vaccinated. 
Um, uh, and the public will make up their mind. I do know what I do not want people banned from somewhere just because they've not been vaccinated. It's not fair. Vaccine and social distance will be with us for a long time. And then Helen says she's in fleet. That might just be an attempt to try and get me to read her, her message because <laughs> that's where I live. Says a vaccination certificate for access to establishments should only be brought in after everyone who is eligible to receive the vaccine has been offered it to include all age groups for Voice Society opening up in an age discriminatory way. Really interesting uh, uh, response there. You can keep this coming in. 8722, start mission of the word times or tweet me at times radio right now let's speak to uh baroness deach who's a crossbench peer and a bioethicist who grapples with these questions all the time uh, hello baroness deach hello uh, oh, well i'm no philosopher no, but that's... i've had to deal with uh, the practical side of this but that's, that's um, in health areas exactly because there's no point it's one thing if we just had philosophers on they'd they'd soon wander off into parallel universes and we do need to be able to ground this in the reality of of uh, of what's um actually going on and what is practical and uh, and all of that as well we've also got to uh, dr alberto giblini uh, who's a senior research fellow at the oxford wero center for practical ethics good morning alberto uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. So, first of all, Alberto, because you've written a book on uh, the ethics of vaccination, what are the questions that we should be grappling with? That uh, we, 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 which in fact we may not be. So, uh, I I would like to follow up on what uh, Professor Green said before. So, he pointed out two aspects that we need to assess to decide which policy to implement. And one is the state of the emergency. So, this clearly is an emergency; it's a global pandemic. And the second thing is. Uh, so the measures should be temporary. So there is a third aspect of, to, to the problem, which is the cost that we are imposing on individuals and on collectives uh, with each measure. So in this sense, lockdown is different from vaccination because lockdown imposes a huge devastating cost on many people, on societies, in a way that is frankly unacceptable at this point. Vaccination, on the other hand, is an incredibly small cost on individuals. So individual freedom matters, but also what also matters is the cost we impose on individuals. The smaller the cost, the stronger the reason for imposing measures that keep other people safe. That is why I think that while lockdown is no longer unjustifiable at this point, but completely rational because it doesn't work in the long term, vaccination on the other hand is a very small cost that is very effective at protecting oneself and other people. So uh, if the reason for keeping us all in a lockdown for one year or something similar to lockdown in one, for one year was that each of us represent a serious threat to other people. So that was the rationale that was given for it. Now, the moment in at which we do not represent a threat to other people, uh, then we should be allowed to have our freedom back. Now, the only way to show that you're not a threat to other people is that is by having this certificate that shows that you are either immune or vaccinated. And this comes at a very, very small cost to individuals. So it's not just a matter of freedom, individual freedom versus collective interest. It's a matter of the cost we are imposing on individuals. So vaccination is a basically at zero cost to individuals. The only problem we might have with vaccination passports is in this transition phase. So I think what, what someone mentioned this before, this transition phase in which the vaccine has not been offered to everyone. So this might create some unfairness. But then the question is not so much whether or not we should have vaccination passports, the question is, what should we do with those who don't have the who haven't had the vaccine yet? So should they stay in a lockdown? Should they have a negative test? 
so th that's I think we should focus the, the 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 question on that problem, not so much of passport themselves, which is completely cost free option to individuals to just get the vaccine. And what about the way that we we juggle cost and the way we look at things because. Uh, we're much better at looking at the immediate cost right now. So, you know, when, when cases are spiking, we go into lockdowns, we want to stop that happening. We're not very good at judging well, what's going to be the, the long-term cost of schools being shut for three months or uh, people being put out of work and, and the, the long-term well, economic cost and, uh, and all of that. So, and in a way, when, when someone, when the Prime Minister is saying we need to lock down because we need to save lives, we don't really think about, well, if, you know, if the economy drops by 10%, the long-term impact on people who are already struggling could be far, far worse. Yeah, so you don't save lives with lockdown. You only save lives with lockdown in the very short term. So lockdown makes sense if it is a matter of a few weeks, maybe a few months. Uh, in, in one year, lockdown doesn't save lives. So lockdown causes deaths because you add deaths that... You, we are failing to prevent through lockdown anyway, plus the death that will follow from uh, from lockdown, job losses, mental health problems, uh, cases of cancers that have been undiagnosed because people were encouraged to stay home, so not to go to the doctor and seek for uh, like medical uh, help or diagnosis for cancer, so there will be a big death toll in that respect. So that's why lockdown is completely irresponsible at this point. And we see we see the evidence that it is not worth it. So if you compare countries with and without lockdowns, so states in the US, if you compare California versus Florida, in Europe, we compare Sweden that didn't lock down with other countries. So these countries really, so so, it, it, so in, in California, for example, so uh, Florida had a, a much higher excess death mm. than California, where, and Florida never locked down and California did. Florida, by never locking down, fares better than 70% of the U.S. states that did lock down. So the cost is huge. It's not that we are not good at calculating this cost. We just don't want to do it. Yeah. So we, yeah, we, because yeah. So we, we only focus on the short term. <laughs> because we want because we want lockdown to be working. Because otherwise, I mean, what on earth are we doing this for? We, we don't look at the other yeah. the other questions. Um, let's bring in Ruth Deitch, Baroness Deitch. And, and as you said, you talked about uh, you're not a philosopher. You know, you work in that the words in the health uh, sphere. And, and of course, to some extent, the medical profession is quite used to making these these value judgments, whether it's, you know, is this individual's, uh, are there prospects uh, enough to justify the potential cost of treatment? And that sort of, and, and doctors make these sort of life and death decisions all the time. It just feels a bit unusual that, that politicians are making it now. Well, it's not quite the same thing. I mean, what I'm thinking about now is that pubs are the least of our problems because <laughs> landlords have always had the right to exclude, for example, smokers or children or people with dogs. But I think certification, and I was quite pleased to hear the Prime Minister use that word rather than passports, which is different. I think it's inevitable because airlines are going to want it, foreign countries are going to want it, various bodies here are going to want it. So um, I dismiss, I think, the claims of the anti-vaxxers and the people who think it's a terrific invasion of their, their privacy. I think we should do it for the greater good. And because people, for example, they might choose a pub on the basis that this pub, yes, it is safe because it, it asks for certification. I think the problems are practical, how to avoid fraud, what about people who don't have mobile phones? We all tend to forget that there's a significant proportion who don't have phones on which to put a certification. They'll need a piece of paper. Are you going to require a photograph? How are you going to make sure this is the right person? There'll be diverging requirements around the world. We don't know how long immunity lasts. There'll be new variants and so on. But I think we have to get on with it because 
as the others have said, stopping lockdown will depend to a great extent on people showing that they're safe and that they've got the common sense and decency to protect others. And let me just mention the NHS. I said I've got no sympathy with the, the non-vaxxers, and even people like Lord Sumption, who keep telling others to disobey the law. Because when it comes to it, they're all going to turn up at the NHS, aren't they, at the local hospital, if they get ill. <laughs> and I think it's no good saying, oh, I'm, I'm not going to have this jab. You know, it's an invasion of my privacy. Who knows what's in it? When actually we all need to accept that we're all in it together when it comes to health, that we need our hospital. And the least that we can do is take what is offered to us free. In some countries, they're paying for it. We're being offered it free in an excellent um, rollout. So let's have certificates. But as the others have said, it may well only be for six months or a year because <laughs> yeah. the situation is going to change. Because I think the other things uh, move on. I was struck there. You, you mentioned the sort of you know doing things for the greater good, and I suppose that's been the big tension the last year, isn't it? It's been the the sort of on the one hand the you know doing things for the greater good, this sense of I think from my A level philosophy, sort of communitarianism uh, and working together versus. Um, the harm principle, uh, basically anyone can be free to act as long as they don't harm anyone else. Um, and that tension, you know, you're, the freedom to, do, to go ahead and do what you like. And, and I suppose the, we haven't really grappled with it or come down on one side or the other. And people, you know, I suppose, well, we'll still be having this debate long after, hopefully, uh, the, 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 the pandemic has uh, since passed. Um, Alberto, where are different countries having different debates? The different countries divide on different lines on this topic. On the passport, on the certification, you on mean? On certification, and just yeah, the, the, yeah. the balance of individual free... Are some countries more willing to go down that road than others? Yeah, like, for example, I'm, I'm in Italy now for personal reasons, uh, so I'm, I'm not in the UK. Uh, and what I'm seeing in Italy, for example, is that uh, many people are in favour of... Uh, um, of not, not just a vaccination, but of some form of certification, which will be basically some form of mandatory vaccination for a limited period of time. So I see people in favor of that here in Italy. More, many European countries uh, are a bit different. So there are countries like Germany, the Netherlands, that are a bit more hesitant around this thing. Uh, but uh, I, I agree with you know, the people who said that this will be inevitable, whether or not countries like it and whether or not individuals like it, because I cannot see at the moment any other way of getting back to normality, especially since governments, including the UK one, apparently with the new with extension of the, of the new uh, of the coronavirus act, are keeping lockdown on the table. So even if they're not using it, it's on the table. So if that's the alternative on the table, I cannot really see how we can do without some form of vaccine certification. Yes, yeah, so um, that's the thing. Is if it's a question, but it's not a question of passport or no passport. It's it's lockdown or passport. And in that question, yeah, that's the way people go. Precisely. Uh, but yeah. I just want to ask you as well, because we were talking about the, the health service. Where do you stand on this question of of it being compul the vaccine being compulsory for people who work in in the health service? It was touched on the prime minister yesterday about people who work in care homes. Do you think it should be compulsory in the NHS as well? You can't physically hold them down and make them have a job <laughs> you can you can make it a condition for a new employee you can offer someone a job only if they've had a vaccination and as far as existing staff go and it's a really vulnerable situation in care homes you can lean on them very heavily but if in the last resort they won't then I think you can't really sack them because that's a change. You'd have to put them somewhere like behind the reception desk or somewhere where they're not actually <laughs> leaning over patients very closely. But I think it's 
inconceivable to my mind that if you're working in that situation, you wouldn't want to do it. As I said, I don't understand the mindset of the non-vaxxers, some of whom are the people who've been said to be most likely to catch it. You know, non-vaxxers, come on, join the real world. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times radio app. If you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 